you just remain in a posture of gratitude and worship and maybe even close your eyes and listen as uh, this time I'm going to read the words to our shared reading to you. You are the beloved of the Lord. In love, he created you. In love, he came to you. In love, he died for you. In love, he makes you his own, folding you into his love, transforming you by his love, and sending you out in his love. By your love, this world will know that you are his. By your love, this world will see him in you as he lives his life of love in you and through you to the glory of God. God's people said, Amen. So what happens when the cancel culture of the kingdom of God, which cancels our guilt and shame, but lifts us up, comes face to face with the cancel culture of our society, which cancels the person and lifts up the guilt and the shame? As you know all too well, our culture finds itself in an increasing crisis of polarization. In a trend that is the opposite of global warming, when it comes to our various views and our beliefs and our convictions and ideologies, we find ourselves increasingly occupying a world that is made up more and more of just two chilly poles and little warmth or common ground to be found in between. glomming together with like-minded others, pulling apart into camps, mutually reinforcing our insider views, and mutually canceling the outsiders' voices. We are living in a global centrifugal separator, spinning faster and faster, heating up hotter and hotter. It throws us together with those whose views mirror ours, and throws us apart from those whose views or beliefs differ from ours. So where do we turn for help? Increasingly, the Bible is looked past rather than to for answers. The world around us has largely concluded that it isn't really relevant anymore, if it ever really was. But if we ever wonder If the 2,000-year-old words of Scripture have anything worth saying to our culture today, we need look no further than the passage of Scripture that we are going to be exploring this morning. How do we relate across lines of difference? How do we interact with someone whose morals or beliefs or convictions are different from our own? Listen to these words of advice from James. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. My dear brothers and sisters, James begins, that is, you who are followers of Jesus, this counsel is for you. Now, right off the bat, some of you who are Christians may find yourself saying at this point, well, yes, but... 
if I follow this advice, if I spend more time listening than speaking up, aren't I condoning their immorality? Aren't I failing to stand up for the truth? I think that is a really valid and a really important question. And James will address that as he comes to the end of this passage when we'll look at it. But first, let's just walk through these bits of practical advice that stand at the heart of James' invitation to us this morning. And here is his invitation. Everyone should be quick to listen. I think this uh, line from David Augsburger is so right on. Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. The best way to love someone in a conversation across lines of difference is just to listen. Well, actually, the best way to love anyone in a conversation about anything is just to listen. People love to share their opinions and perspectives and feelings. So letting the conversation be about them and giving them the opportunity to share what they're thinking about is such a great way to communicate value and worth to someone else. And the best way to listen is to ask someone a question and then close your mouth and open your ears and give yourself to hearing what they have to share with you. Listen well. Put away your phone. Lay down your agenda. Set aside your need to be heard and give your full attention to the other person. Simone Weil was absolutely right when she said, attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. In her book, Distracted, Maggie Jackson tells about a conversation she had with a fellow workshop participant at the end of the retreat. He said, if a person leaps in and sacrifices his life, you leap in and save a baby and then you die, you've given your whole life in one piece. That's a wonderful sacrifice, this man said. You know, greater love hath no man than this that he lays down his life for another. Jesus, right? So that's pretty good. But when we give another person our attention, we are giving away that portion of our life. We don't get it back. We are giving our attention to what seems worthy of our life from moment to moment, which is absolutely core. I would just suggest that James' advice applies to our reading as well as our conversations. When we are deciding whether or not to read a book, the wrong question to ask is, will I agree with everything I find in these pages? That's not reading. That's just reinforcing, which is also known as confirmation bias. James invites us to choose to stick our heads outside of our closed-loop bubbles and to listen to other perspectives and other views and learn from them. One of the best ways to listen well is to ask a question. And then, after that, to ask another question. And then, after that, to ask another follow-up question. Remember that the best questions are open-ended and they invite a person to answer in whatever direction they want to without us controlling the conversation. That means the best questions are not yes or no questions. Do you think the boilers are going to win this afternoon? (laughs) 
And they're not leading questions, which are usually ways of giving our own opinion in the form of a question. Don't you think the boilers are going to stomp the Buckeyes today? And they're not leading and potentially shaming questions, such as, you're not going to root for Ohio State, are you? How in the world could anyone root for Ohio State? That was an example. <laughs> I don't know if you all know this. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Just saying. <laughs> Instead, an open-ended question is one in which a person is given the freedom to take the conversation in whatever direction they choose to. Hey, how do you think the game's going to go this afternoon? A few weeks ago, as uh, I shared with you, I had a chance to go to Charleston for a conference. And during the two and a half days that I was there, I had seven really significant conversations about really significant things with everybody from my fellow passengers on the airplane to my Uber drivers to the, the landlord of my Airbnb uh, to the uh, checkout clerk at American Airlines. And, and it seemed like everybody in between. I had so much fun. Well, let me tell you about a conversation I had with one of my Uber drivers, a man named Michael, who drove me from the conference back to the airport. When uh, I got in the car, he asked me how I liked Charleston. So I told him I loved it, and I asked how long it had been his home. And he told me that he had grown up there, that he headed off to pursue a career, and then he came back uh, to make it his home. That told me something valuable. Um, so then I told him some of the specifics that I loved about the city. I told him how much I loved the beauty of it and the history of it, and especially the unique and amazing architecture, the Piazza House that was invented in Charleston to take advantage of the climate. But then I wanted to move the conversation to a deeper level. So I took a little bit of a risk, and I told him that I also really appreciated uh, taking a little bit of time in the very short time that I had to walk over and see the Mother Emanuel Church where the church shooting had taken place. And then also, um, I went to the slave market. I almost ran to go see it during the time right before he came and picked me up to take me to the airport. I was hoping that that might spark a deeper response in him, and it worked. He paused, and then he said, so, I don't know what you think about this, but this is something I believe really strongly, and I just feel like I need to say it. And then he launched into his views on a very, very controversial societal issue. Um, and I still am not sure exactly how it related to us talking about uh, what, what I had just raised. But that's okay. And uh, I'm not going to name what that issue was because I don't want the specific issue or my view on it to be the focus of this example. So let's just say that his was a view that was very, very different from my own. So he shared his view and why he thought it should be my view too. And he talked about the history of our country and the history of other countries. And he pointed to a couple of sources that he thought pretty convincingly supported his perspective. And then he ended up by saying, now, you, know, you may not believe that. And that's cool. But that's where I am. And I just feel a responsibility to share it. So when Michael finished sharing his view, I said, Michael, I really respect that you were that honest to share your perspective with me. Thank you for that. And I also want to tell you, um, 
I love how gracious you were when you finished sharing your perspective to say, and I'm not going to ram this down your throat. If you have a different view, that's great. I really appreciate that. I really think that just helps conversations go so well. So James goes on to the next step. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. Being slow to speak, I think, uh, has three really important parts to it. First, I stay with the other person even as I begin to interact. I mean, you know the line, but enough about you, let's talk about me. There's a part of all of us that wants to, uh, to jump in and make it about us. But think about this. If we aren't listening to them, why in the world should they listen to us? So even as we begin, we keep the focus on the other person. In his excellent book, which I highly recommend, How to Have Impossible Conversations, Peter Boghossian says, shift your goal from winning to understanding. Make understanding the other person's reasoning your goal. Abandon adversarial thinking, arguing and winning, and adopt collaborative thinking, listening and learning. A second important part of being slow to speak is restating their position to their satisfaction. I call this the George Herbert principle. My favorite poet, as uh, you may know, before uh, he became a pastor, taught rhetoric at Cambridge University in the 1600s. And whenever they would have a discussion in their class where two people were on different sides of an issue, this was his first rule. Repeat back to the other person's view, repeat back the other person's view to their satisfaction before you go on. So if they say that you've misunderstood them when you repeat back their view, well then try it again. And keep repeating it back to them until they say, yes, that's exactly right. That's my view. And then once you get it right, thank them for sharing it. I'm convinced that just this single step has the potential to begin to transform our conversations across lines of difference. Be slow to speak. Proverbs 18, 13 says, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. And then third, I believe that we are invited to practice curiosity. Here are some examples of follow-up questions that are not exactly conducive to continuing a conversation on the other person's part. Are you kidding? <laughs> or how in the world could you see it that way? Or, I love this one, and you call yourself a Christian. <laughs> Here's what a good open-ended follow-up question might sound like. You mean you see it this way? I find that really interesting. Tell me more about that. How did you arrive at that position? It isn't fair for us to require non-Christians to share our moral framework if they don't share our Lord, is it? And it isn't fair to require Christians to arrive at the exact same conclusion to complex theological or political issues that we have, is it? If someone has a moral or a political point of view that is different from ours, even if it is baffling to us or seems blatantly wrong, we are invited by James to seek to understand it. You might ask something like this. I'm curious, what would you say are some of the influences that have shaped your perspective on this issue? Or is there some moral tradition or framework that you turn to when you think about issues like this? I'd love to hear about that. 
Or how has your own life experience shaped your view on this? And if a person's a Christian, you might ask, so which parts of Scripture would you say have most shaped your view on this issue? We're invited to practice what Jim Henderson and Jim Hancock in their wonderful little book, Three Practices for Crossing the Difference Divide, what they call disciplined curiosity. Start a sentence with the phrase, I'd be curious to know. You don't need to memorize a whole list of follow-up questions. Just practice curiosity. Be fascinated. Be intrigued. And just keep asking questions. And after they've shared, keep repeating their answers back to their satisfaction and keep thanking them for sharing. Only then, when the time is right, in the healthy rhythm of a conversation, when they have said or are about to say, and what about you, that's the time to share our views. Not all of our views, but just those that relate to what we've just been talking about. When you think about this, the quicker we launch into our views, the less likely we are to bring the other person along with us, right? Again, Peter Boghossian in How to Have Impossible Conversations says this, nobody likes to be lectured. The research literature on effective communication shows that delivering messages does not work. Messages are information conveyed in one-way transactions. If you find yourself thinking, if they only understood this point, then they changed their mind, you're delivering a message. Ask yourself, was I invited to sh share this or am I just telling them? If it's a latter, you're probably coming across as a messenger. So if you have listened well, there will almost always be a time when the person shifts the conversation back to you. So what about you? What do you think? What's your view on this? So when Michael finished sharing his view, first I said, so it sounds like what you're saying is this. Is that right? That because of these concerns you have, and because of this way of understanding where our society is going, and because this is the way that you think about yourself as an individual and your rights, this is what you think we should do. Is that right? Well, yeah, that's exactly right. And then just to reinforce that it was exactly right, he restated his whole position and quoted his sources again. It was okay. And then I said, so I'm really curious about what you shared. Would you mind if I asked you just a couple of questions? These are not questions as statements. They are really just questions that come out of my genuine curiosity. Yeah, sure, yeah, you bet. So at this point, we were about five and a half minutes from the airport. So I quickly thought of the things I maybe were directions I shouldn't go in the conversation, and this is what I landed on. So, so first I said, all right, so Michael, I'm curious. You talked a lot about individuals and what's best for them, but I, I'm curious if you were to shift your perspective and ask the question from the perspective of what's best for the country as a whole. How, do, how does the view that you hold work from that perspective? Wow, that's, that's a really good question. I'm gonna have to think about that. I'm not sure. But I just know what history tells us, and I know I'm right about this. 
And then I said, okay, here's something else I'm curious about. Uh, just so you know a little bit about me, I'm a follower of Jesus, and, and that shapes pretty much, that shapes my perspective on pretty much everything in terms of my beliefs and convictions. And he said, so am I. And I said, Michael, that is so awesome. How cool that we are brothers in Christ. Well, okay, so you know how becoming a Christian kind of turns everything on its head, starting with us. Well, there's this specific thing that Jesus says that seems to refer to the very thing that you're talking about. And I'm just curious how you fit that together with what you shared earlier about your view on this issue. And as we pulled up and stopped in front of the airport, he said, yeah, I see what you're getting at. I thumped him on that shoulder, and I'll tell you what happened next in a moment. <laughs> Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Uh, the four people uh, in this community who still get the local paper will have seen this morning uh, the uh, cartoon strip or the comic strip, Pearls Before Swine. Uh, first is a box that said, how to talk to a person who doesn't think like you politically. And then it shows the rat talking to a person. And the rat says, I see. Well, that's a very interesting opinion. Next frame. May I suggest a different way to look at this? The person responds, sure. Next frame. Great. Well, I think we all bring different perspectives to the issues. The other person says, right. Perspectives based on our past, our experience, our education, agreed. So I think the point is this. You may just be a moron. <laughs> Final frame, the rat is saying, have you considered hitting your head with a shoe until your brain restarts? And the other person says, leaving now. We are likely to react and become angry, I think, as I've reflected on this, when we are so immersed in a single way of thinking about something and our beliefs are so, and our conclusions are so self-evident to us and everybody we've surrounded ourselves with that we feel utterly baffled by another person's view and it just strikes us as wrong and offensive. Or we personally feel hurt or threatened by something the person has said or the way that they've said it. Or, and I think this is often the case for us as followers of Jesus, we get angry in a conversation when we feel that that person's beliefs or morals are hurtful or offensive to God when they are an affront to him. I want to read a book that will really challenge you. It's called Unoffendable by Brant Hansen. This is what the back cover says about the book. Brant Hansen asks a radical freeing question. What if Christians were the most unoffendable people on the planet? And he offers a life-changing idea. Righteous anger, he says, is a myth. And giving up our right to be offended can be one of the most encouraging and freeing things we can do. Drop your anger and self-centeredness yields to humility. Choose to be unoffendable and you'll flourish in the way God intends you to. James says, be slow to anger. Isn't it the case that we are usually angry 
because things are not going the way that we think they should go. And for us as Christians, aren't we often the angriest when things are not going the way we think God thinks they should go? I mean, anger is directly related to a desire to control an outcome, right? So this takes us back then to that absolutely crucial question that many Christians thoughtfully ask whenever whenever we begin to talk about loving and accepting people whose beliefs and morals are different than our own. Isn't it our job as Christians to stand up for the truth? If we keep silent about sin, aren't we condoning the sin of our neighbor? If we don't condemn immorality, aren't we contributing to the moral erosion of our society? These are fair questions. And there are certainly times when it is appropriate for Christians to express their moral opinions in the public square. And there are certainly times when it is appropriate for Christians to seek justice in the face of injustice in our society. When Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, I think a right application of that principle today is for us to be involved in the political and legal processes in our nation. But that's very different from when I am confronted with a neighbor or an Uber driver or a student who sits next to me in school or a dad sitting next to me in the stands whose beliefs and morals and politics are different from my own and in some way offensive to me. Why not get angry? Look at verse 20 of chapter 1. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Anger doesn't bring about what God wants. Hitting people with truth isn't what leads them to live lives that honor and please God. Well, what does? I think it's fascinating that two chapters later, in James chapter 3, verse 18, you can tell he has been carrying this thought that he just wrote, that we just have been exploring. He's been carrying this thought forward in his head for two chapters, and now he brings the other side to this. This is what he writes, James chapter 3, verse 18, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Which brings us back to the passage we're looking at. What does bring about what God wants? Well, we don't have to look far. We just have to look at the verse right before this one and the one right after this one. Verse 18 of chapter 1, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. The word of truth, that is specifically the gospel, brings about new birth, new life in a person, which will lead to that person living a righteous or God-honoring life. It's the, the word of truth that brings a person to life that leads to what God wants. Look at the verse just after this one, verse 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Again, the word that God plants in us when we humbly accept it will save us, which once again will lead to a person living a righteous or God-honoring life. It's what leads to what God wants. 
We are not saying that truth doesn't matter or has no place in our conversation. But truth from the outside, wielded in our hands, in argument, truth used against a person does not bring about what pleases God. Truth on the inside, planted by the Spirit of God and wielded in the hands of God, does. If we are concerned that someone's behavior is dishonoring to God, the best way to get them to live the sort of life that God wants is not to try to push them into conformity to a standard they don't agree with, but to reflect the heart of God to them by loving them, listening to them, understanding them, accepting them, valuing them, even if they don't agree with us and we don't agree with them. And then when the time is right, having earned trust, sharing the gospel with them and allowing God to change them from the inside. In his amazing book, which I highly recommend, A Gentle Answer, Scott Sauls asks this question. I think this is so challenging. Why is the world's experience of Christians so different from Christians' experiences of Christ? Why is the world's experience of Christians so different from the Christians' experience of Christ? And then he writes this in Jesus' interaction with the woman caught in the act of adultery. Before he says to her that she must leave her life of sin, he first assures her that as far as he is concerned, she is not condemned. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus says. Go and sin no more. And then Scott Sauls writes this. If you reverse the order of those two sentences, if you say leave your sin before you will consider saying, neither do I condemn you, then you have ceased to speak the language of Christ. And you have ceased to reflect the heart of Christ. John 13, Jesus says, now I give you a new commandment. Love. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Your love. As Michael and I pulled into the airport, I thumped his shoulder. I said, hey, Michael, thank you so much for being able to have a conversation about stuff that really matters. And to be able to do that in a really gracious way. I think these are things that are so important to God, and I'm so glad we got a chance to talk about them. As I grabbed my carry-on stuff and hopped out of the back seat, he hopped out of his front seat and came around the car and he stuck out his hand, shook my hand, and said, I just want to thank you. This is such a great conversation. Thank you so much. What brings about what God wants? A change of mind. But what brings about a change of mind? A change of heart. And what brings about a change of heart? Only love can. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. That's how the original cancel culture works. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Would you join with me in our shared reading? We are the beloved of the Lord. 
In love, he created us. In love, he came to us. In love, he died for us. In love, he makes us his own, folding us into his love, transforming us by his love, sending us out in his love. By our love, this world will know that we are his. By our love, this world will see him in us as he lives his life of love in us and through us to the glory of God. I invite our worship team to come forward. And as they do, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, uh, in your word, uh, we as your followers are called Christians, little Christs. Lord, make that true of us. Make each of us into a little version of you. Amen. <laughs>